0: All right. Well, as you have a seat there, I want you to look at the person next to you and tell them the one food, piece of food that you are most looking forward to this week. Just one thing. Tell them. Go ahead. You have 10 seconds. <laughs> All right. Okay, what's, what's the strangest thing out there? That's what I want to know. Anyone looking forward to something really unusual? No, okay, we're all just like, or maybe we have no, yeah. Baked oysters, all right, there you go. Not super unusual, but for Thanksgiving, probably most of us don't have it. Thank you for someone answering. I thought we were all a little too uniform. So good, baked oysters, way to go. All right, well, I am glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, we are, this morning, completing a series through the book of Ezra. We've been studying it for, this is our 10th week, and so we're completing it today. Some of you are very happy about that and are, are rejoicing, and uh, some of you are sad, I know. You don't want to, to let it go, but we're finishing it today. And the, to as a way of reminder, the reason we started this series... And we went through the book of Ezra. It's kind of an obscure book in the Old Testament. And the reason we did is because we believe that it teaches us about how God interacts with his people for his purposes. And the principles we learn in this apply to us today, for us as a church today. And we can learn, if God, you are unchanging as we just sang. We know that this is how you are and how you interact. Therefore this is a challenge for us today that God is still working through his people for his purposes. So that's why we began this series. Now next week that means we are beginning what we call our season of Advent. It's four weeks as we head into Christmas. Yes, it's that soon. It'll be here that soon. And so next week we'll be beginning, and, and I'm really excited about our Advent series this year. Our theme is God Came Down. And what we'll be studying is this idea of because God came down, we can experience hope. We can experience peace. We experience joy. We experience love. And it's all a result of the fact that God broke out of the norm. He came down in the form of man, and he lived among us he lived a life with us, and because of that, it changed everything. And the cool thing about this Advent series is that it comes it's perfectly in line with completing the book of Ezra, because the book of Ezra actually ends. It's the last narrative historical section of the Old Testament, and the next thing we l- learn is that God comes down. So we're setting the stage for it, and I'm really excited for it, and this, this Advent series is a great opportunity for you to invite a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, someone who you think might be interested in, in hanging out at church or at least... They're willing enough to say, sure, I'll check it out once. And we, we believe that when we see why God came down, that we can experience all those things that you and I long for in life, like hope and peace and, and joy. So that's starting next week. So uh, looking forward to it and ask you to, if, if this is your church home, continue to pray for that season for us. Uh, so I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. We'll be in chapter 9 and 10 today, if you want to find Ezra in your Bible, it's not quite halfway. If you open up halfway and find Psalms, maybe uh, just back up a little bit, and it's a little bit before halfway. It's a book of Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of together there, and uh, you are always welcome to use your tablet or smartphone as well for Scripture, and uh, so feel free to do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you so much for your great love, for your care for us. Uh, Lord, in this room, uh, we come from very different places this morning. Some maybe are experiencing some grief and heartaches some doubts, um, some pain, uh, maybe struggles. God, some are in seasons of joy and rejoicing for transitions in their life. And, but God, we all come to you broken. We all come to you imperfect. We all come to you in need of you. And so we give you this time now, and we ask that my words would be yours, and we ask that you would meet us each in the place where you want us to be, in this place. And draw us into a greater understanding and appreciation for who you are, so that we may be transformed by who you are. So we thank you and give you this time now. In your name, amen. So we are in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, and we're going to jump right into the text today. That's the creative intro for the morning. Uh, We're going to start and and I'm going to going to read through uh, a significant part uh, of chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 and then we'll back up and ask the questions of why is this in here? What do we have to learn from it? So it starts off in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1. Now when these things had been completed, And these things he's talking about, is everything up to this point in the story. And up to this point in the story is the Israelites as a nation were living in exile in uh, Persia, or or originally in Babylon, then the Persian Empire took over and sent them back. And so when the Persian Empire sent them back, he said, reestablish, rebuild your temple, reestablish the worship of your God, and reestablish your nation. So they did that. We've been studying the process that has been taking place over the last really fifty plus years, and they faced opposition, they reestablished their worship of God. All of these things have taken place. So he says, Now, after all these things happen, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, or the princes approached me, saying, and the person writing is Ezra. So they approach Ezra and say, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. And he lists some of the tribes, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and he lists several tribes there. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and some of their sons, so that the holy race has been intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And Ezra said, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe. I pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until evening offering. Verse 5, but at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation. Even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees, and I stretched out my hands to God. To the Lord my God, and I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my voice to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been built we have been in great guilt, and on account of our sins, we, our kings and our priests, have been given to the head and to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder, and open shame, as it is to this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us. He's extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, God, that we, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments and continues to go on and talk about their sin. In verse 13, we'll jump down to there. It says, After all of this has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requi- requited us requ- less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of our destruction till there is no remnant? Verse 15, he ends here. O Lord our God, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is to this day. We are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Now that's a long little passage that we're going to jump go through today. And you might be thinking, Wow, Ryan, thanks for the uplifting start to the morning. (laughs) And what we want to do here is we're going to take a moment to talk about, first of all, what is the issue that's going on here? Because it's really important that we don't misunderstand this issue. It's really important that we understand what is the issue and what really is not going on. First of all, The issue here is that the Israelites were living in sin. The leaders were sinning. They were doing something that went against what God has asked for them. And the explanation of this sin here was that they were marrying foreign sons and daughters. They were intermarrying with the tribes that were not part of the nation of Israel. Now, we're going to get into just a moment uh, what this is not saying. Because this can very much be misunderstood and taken out of context in a very inappropriate way. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But first we need to understand, why is this sin for the Israelites? Why is this described as their great sin that the leaders were participating in? And to understand that, first we need to understand a little bit about marriage in the ancient world. See, marriage in the ancient world was a transaction. It was often designed to be something that had to do with, very often could be, to bring for your the two families together to increase your political standing so maybe some of your power and influence maybe it could have been about expanding your land expanding your herds you know you'd give a little bit for your son their daughter they come together and they now are more have more wealth and can pass that on for generation after generation and it could have been for military purposes that you marry and you give your sons and daughters in marriage for treaties so that you have protection. So marriage often resulted in those things. Now there are some cases we even read in scripture where some of the marriages happened because someone maybe fell in love. But very rarely was it that, you know, they were at the skating rink and a slow song came on and some guy saw this girl and they kind of talked and then they said they fell in love and got married. It didn't happen that way too often. Um, I said that analogy in first service and all the high schoolers are sitting here, looked at me like, what's a skating rink? But, you know, anyway, child of the 80s, you know, that's that's where it all happened. So... But it, it was very rarely like that. It wasn't like, and, and so when you look in this idea of intermarriage, they weren't also looking at saying, hey, what if we have intermarriage and I marry someone from that race and it's going to make really cute grandkids, you know, kind of that. So I, when I married my wife, she's part Japanese, and I thought that's going to be good to bring in a little, I mean, it's going to make cute kids, and that's just a total bonus that I got to, to marrying her. So um, it, it, some of you are just staring at me like, "Right, really? Yeah, so... That's not why I married her. That was a bonus for marrying her. But that wasn't the way it was in the ancient world. It was more to do with transactions and how could it benefit both of the families bringing them together. Now, keep that in mind. Now, here's the next piece. At the core of the Israelites' religion, at the core of who they are to this day, It's very important that they understand this. And they have this saying, it's a a verse from scripture and it's called the Shema. Isn't that beautiful? I love Hebrew. So the Shema. And Shema means listen or hear. And it's based on Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. It's a core of the very first commandment that says you shall have no other gods before me because the Lord your God is one God. So at the core of your belief is that there's one God. Now, think of this. Let's go back to the marriage idea. In the ancient world, because marriage was often a transaction and because it had to do with bringing the families together, what often happened, it was a blending of the cultures. Now, not a blending of the cultures in the really helpful ways. One thing I love about America is we're the most diverse country on earth. We are. And the cool thing is, is we have all this great food and great traditions and all these things. When you blend cultures, you get a lot of good stuff that comes as a result of it. You have Thanksgiving dinner and you might have some Mexican flair to it or or maybe some Asian flair to it. And that's just a cool way to blend the cultures. But the negative, what happened for the Israelites, it wasn't just a blending of the cultures, but it was also a blending of the religion. And so when you combine the families, you'd say, we'll take a little bit of the gods you follow, you take the gods we follow, and we just follow all the gods. So now consider if the core of your faith, the core of your belief, is you shall have no other gods before me. There's only one God. And now you're giving your sons and daughters into marriage and adopting in these other religions and synchronizing your faith to make them some sort of blend of something new. Now can you see what the sin is here? You see, the sin wasn't intermarrying. It, it wasn't about mixing races. It was about compromising their belief in one God. And so please make sure you, we are very clear about this. This is not advocating one ethnocentric race that is a pure and perfect race. It's not about that. Let's not misunderstand that especially in our world today that is confused in many ways. It's not that. This is advocating followers of God to not compromise their faith. And just by way of example, we have in the history of Israel, biblical history, there's some wonderful examples of people who were not of the tribe of Israel, who married into, but who converted and said, we will follow your God. We have a, a lady named Rahab who was a Jebusite ma- mentioned with these tribes saying, don't marry these people. She was one of them. She's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Ruth, who was a Moabite, she was listed as a, fam- a tribe. Don't marry into these tribes. But she said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I want to follow the God of the universe. And she was welcomed in and it's a great Uh, the grandmother of King David and in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So scripture is not saying there should be one pure race. It's saying there should be a pure faith following one God, one true God. Let's not miss that point. Jesus Christ gives us a great example uh, time and time again in scripture of reaching across racial lines, reaching across even religious lines to people and say, I want you to understand who the true God is. And to welcome people in in the case of the Samaritan woman, there's a story who they saw the Samaritans as a, a mixed race and a race that had adopted other faiths. And and the Jews at the time said, We don't want anything to do with the Samaritans, but Jesus said, No, you don't get it. God cares about them and will welcome them in if they choose to follow the one true God. So this is not about one race being superior, it's about a worship of God. And in the case of the Israelites, God had asked them not to intermarry because for them, it became compromising their faith. In most cases, not all, but most cases. So let's be clear on that. And the beautiful thing of the picture of eternity in heaven, we're told that every tribe and race, every tongue will be in heaven worshiping God. Those who follow Christ, there is no one race. The one race is those who are followers of Jesus. And the picture of heaven is a lot of unity together across these racial lines. And so uh, it's important that we understand that. And and one of the beautiful things about the church, the history of the Christian church, is the church is the ones who started hospitals the church, the followers of Jesus are the ones who started universities. The church are the people who, have, who started soup kitchens and helping the poor. Throughout history, the church has reached across those lines and been an example of the love and grace of Jesus in every walk of life to every tribe and tongue. And we get to participate in that. And the church still to this day has a responsibility and an opportunity to lead the way in what it means to show true love. So I I love that. So let's make sure we understand what is the sin and what is, is not the sin in this case. The sin was the compromising of their faith. Okay, so that's the issue here. Now let's look at the response because I think it's important here of this passage to learn how do we respond when there's sin in our lives or sin in the community? How do you respond when followers of God find themselves in sin? Now, also be sure that this is talking about how followers of God... Not for how those who don't follow God, but followers of God. How do we respond to sin? And uh, there's a few things here. The first one in this is a healthy response to sin we see in this passage. One, Ezra starts off with grief. Verses 3 through 5, we see him, he, pull, he tears his robes, which is an ancient Near Eastern tradition of just mourning. And then he pulls out his hair and pulls out his, the hair in his beard. Those of you who have a beard, you know what he's doing here, Right? That's terrible. I hate it when my razor isn't even sharp. And, you know, it's like, ah. He pulls out his beard. He's feeling this great grief over sin. So a healthy response is grief over sin. I wonder how many of us experience grief in our sin. Or do we just go, eh, whatever. No one's perfect. The next response we see here is remorse. We see that in verses 10 through 13. There's embarrassment. Ezra actually says, God, I wish we never did this, but we keep doing it. There's remorse for it. When I was in elementary school, uh, I had a situation come up on one of the teams I played on, and the coach told me, hey, Ryan, if you're going to play in the next game, you have to apologize to the team for what you did. I don't even remember the whole circumstance. I just remembered this part of the story, that the coach said, you have to say you're sorry to the team uh, to play the next game and I I was talking to one of my friends and and who was on the team he said Ryan it's easy it's really easy we'll get together as a team look at the team and say I apologize he goes you don't have to say you're sorry just apologize he goes I do that all the time and like what a great way to do it this sixth grader taught me great wisdom I could say hey I really apologize but inside you don't have to be sorry huh wasn't that brilliant (laughs) I'm not teaching that as a good principle. I'm saying. <laughs> a lot of us, that's kind of how we approach our sin with God. God, I apologize. I apologize. But are we sorry? Do we feel that remorse? It says, God, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to do this. Ezra gives this example where he didn't apologize, he was sorry for the sins of their nation. So a healthy response has grief. It has remorse. And then this, a change of direction. In chapter 10, we don't have re- time to get into all that. Chapter 10, verses two through eight, we see that the leaders in the nations, they say, we don't want to live this way anymore. So let's change what we're doing. So they all get together and they, they actually do this investigation that takes a couple of months to find out who was living in sin, who was intermarrying. I always thought that was bizarre because it's like, how, does, how long does it take you to figure out who's intermarrying? Don't you just knock on the door and say, oh, you guys are intermarried, you guys are intermarried. It it seems like it would be pretty fast. But what actually was the case here is because I believe what they're investigating was which of you are compromising your faith. You've intermarried and you've adopted foreign gods. And it turns out that there's about 100 names that were listed who were in this sin. But they all came and said, "We we need a change. Tell us how to change. So a healthy response to sin is grief, it's remorse, and then it's this willingness to turn and go a different direction. Go a different direction. So, so far today, this sermon is bad news, by the way. So far, this is all bad news. Because, yeah, we learned a healthy response to sin, but this is all tough stuff, isn't it? This is if this was the end of the story, if I left here today and said, "Okay, so we all sin. So you guys should feel guilty, should feel rem- you should have grief and guilt and change from your ways. Okay, let's pray and leave." How great would that be? You would leave here and think, "Oh, I hate going to that church." <laughs> if that's where you leave you. And if we stopped there, but the great thing about this story is the rest of it is all good news. Because we all fall short. We all struggle. One of the ways, even this whole idea of change of directions, this is why we like you to plug into small groups here at Seacoast. Well, that's why we want you to be in life groups. Here's the reason why. Because in your life group, there's someone who can walk with you and say, hey, I want, we want to help you in the areas of your life where you need to change direction. I'm in a life group. Sometimes we'll talk about the struggles we have and say, hey, here's one of my issues, here's one of my sins. Can you guys just pray for me on that? Can you, you know, kick me in the head if you need to, whatever it is? But this is not the place, a large group. You need a smaller group to help you change direction. But even that's tough sometimes. And it's not, and and I also need to say this, we're not talking about behavior modification. We don't want to be a church full of people that just change what we do. We want to be about heart transformation let God change who we are so here's the good news let's look at the rest and I want to spend most of the time on the good news this is the lesson here first of all this story is not about sin this story is about a God who provides for us in our sin this is about the character of God the fact that we can hope in who God is and hope gives us the ability to respond in those healthy ways Because because of who God is, we can do those things in a healthy way. I'm going to give you an illustration in a moment. As we look at some of the principles of what about God, help us respond. What about what's the hope in who he is? I want to show you a little bit of who he is first. Uh, Turn over in the book of Nehemiah. It's the next book over. And we mentioned before Nehemiah and Ezra were connected. So they originally were one complete thought. And some of the stories in it are intermixed and they're out of order, but they're telling one story. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see a story where the people confess their sins. Now some scholars uh, aren't sure if this is another instance where the people of Israel needed to confess sins or it's connected to the same one. Most believe that it's connected at least roughly to the same situation. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, they have this long prayer and basically they recount the story of Israel and how the people were led out of Egypt, they fell into sin and, and just their history of stubbornness and falling. But I want to just pull out a few key verses here. Look in verse 17, the second part of 17. First part says, our, our, our forefathers refused to listen to you. They did not remember any of your deeds. They became stubborn. They appointed a leader in their, to their slavery in Egypt. And then he says this, In the end of 17, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You did not forsake our people. Verse 19 says, you and your great compassion did not forsake our people in the wilderness. Verse 20, you gave them your spirit to instruct them. Jump all the way down to uh, verse 30. Verse 30, so he continues to tell their story of all their history of sin. And in verse Thirty it says, you bore with them for many years, you admonished them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear to you, therefore they gave, you gave them into the land of the peoples, so you sent them into exile. and then he says this in verse thirty one Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsaken them, because you are a gracious and compassionate God. You see all throughout this story about the sin and about their struggles and their continuing to go back to their, their folly and their failures, they were reminded God is gracious and compassionate. And because of that, because of the grace of God, they were able to respond in healthy ways. So I have a few thoughts for you. When we understand God's grace, we understand his compassion. God's grace gives us the freedom to fail and to admit it. Now here's an illustration for you. I drive around my truck, and my truck has a check engine light that's on. It's on all the time. I'm just waiting. Actually, it's been on so long, I'm waiting for that light to burn out one of these days. It's used more than any other light in my truck. And so, and and I have to go when it's time to smog check it. I have to get it reset just long enough to smog check it, and then it will pop back on because it's a computer glitch or something. It's not a Volkswagen thing or any sort of cheating the system. It's just it it needs to be reset. So, um, sorry, I thought that was funny. Um, And so, the check engine light's on. Now, I don't care. I know, I've already checked it out. There's nothing wrong. But now, when people borrow my truck, they start driving it and they call me and go like, hey, your check engine light came on. I just want you to know, and, and I didn't do it. Is it, is it going to be okay? Because to them, that warning means something. But to me, it doesn't mean anything anymore. A lot of us walk around, and, and I always use this comparison that that's like sin in our lives. The first time it pops up, That check engine light comes on, we usually check it out, don't we? We go like, ooh, I don't want to do that again. I'm sorry, that check engine light came on. But we kind of grow used to it after a while to the point where we just say, "Uh, if we don't deal with it, it's just a light. A friend of mine uh, drove around, his oil light came on in his car. And he's like, "Ah, I should probably deal with that. But he didn't. Three months later, he's driving on I-5 and his car said, all right, done, gave you enough grace. And it seized up on the middle of the road and he threw a rod, destroyed his engine because he waited three months with no oil in his engine. Again, how many of us do that with sin in our lives? The check oil light comes on and we think we better deal with that. But now I want to show you something. What if we messed up our engine, the oil light was on, we went to our mechanic and said, hey, uh," you know, I drove around for three months with my check engine light Sorry, can you deal with this? And the mechanic says, yeah, I got it. fix your engine, reset the light. Everything's fine. When you see that light go on again, ch- change your oil. Just uh, take care of it, okay? Okay, how much does that cost you? Don't worry about it. I took care of it. I took care of it. And you say, oh, sounds great. You drive away. Light comes on. You ignore it. Three months later, you go into your mechanic and go like, ah. I know you told me not to do this. I know you even sent the little light it turned on to tell me to stop doing this, but I didn't. And I did it again, and I messed up, and the mechanic says, yeah, I know. Okay, I tell you what. I'll fix your engine, take care of it, and you can go on your way. You go like, I know, but I, this is so stupid. How, how much are going to cost? This one better cost a lot, right? The mechanic says, no, I got you. I told you I'll take care of it. Go. And you do it again and again. And every time, the mechanic says, I got you. Now, how do you feel about that person taking advantage of that mechanic, right? But here's the thing. This mechanic's response, the grace of this mechanic, gives you the freedom to fail. If the mechanic said, every time you come in, I'm doubling your cost until it hurts so bad, would you go into that mechanic? Eventually, you'd just say, like, ah, I'm going to just somehow get by because I don't want that mechanic to see me. You see, how many of us approach God that way? We think that every time we go back to God the punishment is going to be greater because we should have we should know better you should know better we know and we're so afraid to keep going back because we think he keeps raising the price but he says no i paid the price already you can come back time and time again now i sent a light called the holy spirit this whole thing's an analogy for god by the way okay so I sent a light, it's the Holy Spirit that warns you when it's time to maybe check the way you're living. We all know that and that light comes on, don't we? But every time you come back, I've got you covered. You see, God's grace gives us the freedom to fail and to admit it. If there wasn't grace there, we'd, we'd just say like, I don't know, my friend borrowed my car, I didn't do it. <laughs> but God's grace allows us to look at our life group and say, I, I blew it. have your life group look at you and say you know what you're imperfect just like i am good thing jesus is better than you (laughs) see god's grace gives us the freedom to fail we see that in this passage the next thing we see is god's grace gives us the motivation to be transformed you see the beautiful thing about this mechanic who every time says hey i got you covered that doesn't make me think well then i don't care about how i drive you know what it makes me think I'm going to start taking care of this car because this guy's so nice. I hate, I don't want to take advantage of this person anymore. See, it's God's grace gives us the motivation to be transformed. This is not about earning your way to God. It's not about changing your behavior enough so the mechanic says, wow, way to go. It's about saying, because you're so gracious, because you're so caring for me, I'm going to do everything I can to not have to make you help me out again on this. The analogy breaks down, I get it, but you see what I'm saying. It's the kindness of this mechanic that gives me the motivation to be transformed. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and the tolerance and God's patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. You see, it's God's kindness that causes us and gives us a motivation to tra- be transformed, to be changed. There's nothing that you can do in here this morning, nothing you have done, nothing you will do, That will take away from that compassion and kindness and love of God. You can go to him time and time again. And that kindness is what should cause us to say, I want to be transformed. God, would you step in and change who I am from the inside? Transform my heart. And finally this, God's grace gives us the fuel to change. You see, I don't know about you, but it's difficult to change who I am. It's difficult to change my favorite sins. (laughs) We all have them, don't we? We all have the ones that we, our go-to sins, that we like. They're different person to person. There are ways that we can take control of our lives, ways we can take control away from God, ways that we can self-medicate, whatever that looks like for you, to cope (laughs) instead of resting in who God is. We all have those different things. It's really hard to be transformed. But God's grace gives us the fuel to be changed, to be transformed. When we realize that Jesus is enough for us, we are set free from the root of sin. I want you to get this. The root of most of our sins, or maybe all sin, is an unbelief in what God provides for us. You see, the root of the sin of the Israelites was an unbelief that God could provide enough for them. They intermarried to get themselves in a better position politically, to strengthen them, to give them more wealth, all of these things. When God said, I've got you, I will provide. But they didn't quite fully believe that. So they took matters into their own hands and it became sin. See, the root of most of our uh, sins, and, and some would argue all of our sins, the root is an unbelief in the fullness of God. And so the more we can believe in who Jesus is and all that his death and resurrection means for us, all that his provision means for us, we have the fuel to be transformed. We have the fuel to believe fully that Jesus becomes enough for our lives. He stands in the gap for us. And here's the greatest news about this story. This story points the way and paves the way for Jesus Christ who will start celebrating next week that God came down. Because he came down and stepped into our story at a time when we had this endless cycle of failing and falling short. And he stepped in and said, I will make a way for you and for all mankind. It's really good news. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up. And as they make their way up, I'm going to challenge us. We're going to end with uh, Psalm chapter 24. There's a song that was written several years ago. I guess it's probably been 10 or 15 years now. Taken right out of this psalm. In this psalm it says, God, who may abide in your dwelling? Who may be in your presence, God? Who can stand before you? And it says this, He with a clean, those with a clean hands and a pure heart. Those who don't lift their souls to another idol, who don't bow before other gods. And then it becomes a prayer that says, God, may we... Be the generation who seek your face, who serve you. I want to end here. This The whole series of Ezra, we need to end with this commitment to say, God, let us be a community of people who stand before you with clean hands, with pure hearts. God, help us not lift our souls to any other idols, to anything that wars for our attention and for our souls. God, we want to be a community that puts you first in all things and therefore puts you on display so that you can transform our our world. And so we're going to end with this song and make it our prayer. And I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand with us. And I'm going to challenge you. It'll feel a little awkward, but one of the things that Ezra does here is he stretches out his hands to God and says, God, we need you. And so when we end this song Uh, end with this song, I'm going to ask you at some point, would you be willing to even stretch out your hands and say, God, this is our prayer as a church. Would you change us? Would you give us clean hands? Would you give us pure hearts? Would you help us not bow our hearts to any other God but you? So stand with me as we pray. God, we thank you for this time. I thank you for the challenges we found in the book of Ezra. I thank you for the reminder that time and time again that you were God who is compassionate, that you didn't give the people everything they deserved, that you were gracious, that you were, your, your grace kept showing up time and again. Your loving kindness never ends. And God, that is the same for us today. Lord, help us believe that you are enough. And Lord, would you receive this time now as our prayer to you as a community that says, we want to respond to your grace. We want to respond to your compassion. We want to be transformed because of what you've done. We don't want to run around trying to change our behavior. We want our hearts to change and let the rest catch up with what's happening on the inside. God, would you transform us now and receive this song as our prayer to you in this place.